Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you, you, you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe. We have a great treat for you, for you all. Um, we have my friend, and he, he's been here since the beginning, uh, Bill Hendricks. And most of you know who Bill is because you found him and his wife Lynn serving in many ways. But I, let me just tell you a little bit more about Bill because he, uh, it's just incredible and you may not know all of these things about him. Um, he is the current president of the Giftedness Center, which is a Dallas-based consulting practice that helps individuals think through their life and career decisions. He has all the answers, in short. <laughs> um, he's also, and get this, the executive director of, for Christian leadership at the Hendricks Center at, the da at Dallas at DTS, and he's co-authored and authored a number of books, including uh, one with his sister, Bev, um, so how do I parent this child? Um, the wisdom and the wonder of who your child was meant to be. So he and his wife Lynn have been here from the beginning. Lynn is the uh, warden uh, of the vestry and he has three grown daughters who've already, who are already graduated and, um, and so he's got so much more. He's got um, years of experience and he uh, is a master at barbecue. His chili isn't worth competing with. It's that good. So why don't you extend a hand of blessing, and I'll pray for Bill, and then we will await to hear. Lord, thank you for this man. Thank you for the heart that you've given him. Thank you for the gift that he is to so many. And as you've done so many times before, we ask that you do it again now. Would you put power onto his message? And give us hearts to receive all that you have for us, Jesus, through him. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Well, unlike Dr. Robert Sloan and Carrie Boren Headington, I do not do this every week, so you must humor me. I've got a few notes I have to have put in front of me here. Um, you may be wondering, where's Lynn? Lynn landed in London this morning with her mother, she and her mother wanted to go to, I think it's called the Chelsea Flower Show in England. I guess it's a big deal. I'd never heard of it, but they had to go. And they're going to be over there and do a tour of, you know, London, and then they're going to go to Oxford. And I've been told that a friend has arranged for them to have a private tour of the Queen's Garden at Windsor Castle. So... And, I, you know, when I heard about this, I said, Lynn, you're going to miss my sermon. <laughs> to which she said, oh, <laughs> right. Well, David told me I could preach on anything, and I 
anything I wanted and, and uh, that I don't really have to stick to the scriptures that we've had in the lectionary, but to me that would feel like cheating. I, I think that these passages have been given to us this Sunday, which by the way is the sixth Sunday of Easter. We're still in the Easter season. And next week we celebrate Ascension Sunday. And some of you who were here will remember that about four years ago, Nelson Kaczewski preached on the Ascension, and now he's personally sitting with that Ascended King. And it was an amazing sermon. But today's lesson presents us with an even deeper mystery than the Ascension. Because it says, if anyone loves me, they will obey me. They will obey my word, and my Father will love them, and we will come to them and take up residence with them. We will take up residence with them. Did you hear that? Jesus is making a promise that under certain conditions, he and the Father will come and take up residence with you and me. And we only heard six verses read from John 14, but if you read the whole chapter, it's filled with references to the Father's house or household and dwelling places and of Jesus going to prepare a place for you and me and of the Father residing in Jesus and in our passage about Jesus and the Father taking up residence in us. And in verse 25, Jesus says, I have spoken these things while staying with you. There's a lot of place language here and more specifically, home language. And rather than dance around and try to reconstruct all the contours of John 14, which, by the way, is pretty complex, and which sits smack in the middle of what is arguably Jesus' uh, greatest discourse, which he, he gives because it's, it's his last night on earth. And we might also point out that the, all the evidence suggests that the disciples who heard that discourse, they were clueless what he was talking about. And they, they, it was only much later that they woke up to the significance of what he actually had to say that night, which for any of you who happen to be teachers, that should give you some comfort when you teach and people have a blank stare, okay? Even Jesus had trouble with his learners. Anyway, rather than complicate things, let's just cut to the chase and say that this chapter and especially this portion of what we've had read this morning confronts us with a question. Where do you live? Where do you live? Now, I suppose most everyone in the room this morning could answer that question with, with, with an address for a house, an apartment, maybe a trailer. Sadly, too many people in our world, of course, don't have an address where they live in as much as they live on the street and the so-called homeless, which more recently to restore some of their dignity are referred to as the houseless or the unhoused or people without housing. But whether you can cite an address or not, a physical domicile is only part of the answer to the question, where do you live? That's your physical address. My question is, what's your spiritual address? What's your spiritual address? Let's do a crash course in what's called theological anthropology, which is a fancy term for talking about what's the nature of human beings. A human is a soul-body unity. That means we have a physical dimension, a material dimension, our body, and we have an immaterial dimension, our soul. 
your body lives in a house, a place, but where does your soul live? Well, of course it lives inside your body. That's its physical address. But what is your soul's spiritual address? Your soul belongs to the spiritual realm, which transcends the physical realm, and therefore transcends your body. The spiritual transcends the physical. That's one reason why science is not the right tool for detecting spiritual categories. Nothing wrong with science, but if science is your only source for investigating and determining reality, you'll miss the spiritual dimension altogether. The question of the morning is, where is your soul living? And our passage, along with the rest of the Bible, indicates that there are only two options for the answer to that question. One is with God, the other is apart from God. Jesus, who is one with God and the Father, makes, it, makes not only a promise, but an offer. My Father and I will come to you and take up residence with you. We will make our home with you a place to live. And we might add that in this same chapter of John, he further promises that the Father will send one who is called the advocate or helper, whom he says will be with you and in you forever. That, of course, is God the Holy Spirit. So now you've got more theology than you can possibly stand for one morning, having heard something complex about the nature of humans and something even more complex about the nature of God that he's one God, but he exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three of whom are promised to come and live with you and even inside you. John 14 is not really about us going to live with God someday. It's about God coming to live with us. And who wouldn't want that? Well, except that all the stories in the Bible are about people whose souls start out living apart from God, and then God comes to them and offers to take up residence with them. And some respond to that, but others don't. One of the people who did respond was an extraordinarily troubled man who lived on the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Bob Bennett tells this story much better than I can. Man of the tombs, he lives in a place where no one goes, and he tears at himself and lives with a pain that no one knows. He counts himself dead among the living. He knows no mercy and no forgiving. Deep in the night, he's driven to cry out loud. Can you hear him cry out loud? Man of the tombs, possessed by an unseen enemy, he breaks every chain and mistakes his freedom for being free. Shame and shamelessness equally there, like a random toss of a coin in the air. Man of the tombs, he's driven to cry out loud. Underneath, underneath this thing that I've become, a fading memory of flesh and blood, I curse the womb, I bless the grave, I've lost my heart, I cannot be saved. Like those who fear me, I'm afraid. Like those I've heard, I can feel pain. Naked now before my sin, and these stones, they cut against my skin. Some try to touch me, but no one can. For man of the tombs I am. Down at the shoreline, two sets of footprints meet. One voice is screaming, other voice begins to speak. 
In only a moment, and only a word, the evil departs like a thundering herd. Man of the tombs, he hears this cry out loud. Underneath this thing that you become, I see a man of flesh and blood. I give you life beyond the grave. I heal your heart. I come to save. No need to fear. Be not afraid. This man of sorrows knows your pain. I come to take away your sin and bear its marks upon my skin. When no one can touch you, still I am. I can, for son of God I am. Dressed now and seated, clean in spirit and healthy of mind, man of the tombs. He begs to follow, but he must stay behind. He'll return to his family with stories to tell of mercy and madness of heaven and hell. Man of the tombs, soon he will cry out loud. Underneath this thing that I once was, now I am a man of flesh and blood. I have a life beyond the grave. I found my heart, I can now be saved. No need to fear, I'm not afraid. This man of sorrows took my pain. He comes to take away our sin and bear its marks upon his skin. I'm telling you this story because man of the tombs I was. He was a man, here was a man whose soul lived in hell. And how many people around us possess souls that are bound in torment? To rage, to bitterness, to addictions, to lust, to greed, to God knows what demons of destruction. Jesus is the way to the Father, who is the one who gives the Spirit. And when the Spirit and the Father and the Son come to dwell with and in a person, they bring liberty and they bring healing and they bring life and they bring peace. Where is your soul living? All the stories in the Bible are about people whose souls start out living apart from God and then God comes and offers to take up residence with them. And all the stories since the Bible are the same. Back in the 1940s, a young woman from New Jersey named Davy met a man named Sheldon who was from a genteel family from the deep south and they fell passionately in love. It was the sort of love you could base a masterpiece theater series on because it involved poetry and picnics and wine and a sports car and travel and sailing in the Chesapeake Bay and clam bakes and Hawaii and Pearl Harbor and all the other things that make for a grand adventure and a great love. And like so many people then and now, Davy was a good person. But then there's this downer that we run into in Ephesians 2 that says she was also a dead person, dead in her trespasses and her sins. Not like she or Sheldon cared about that. As far as they were concerned, God was a character in a fairy tale. They had their love, which was unshakable. And to be honest, it was a love that any of us would envy because it was true and solid and quite formidable. As I say, it was a love that any of us would surely envy. But then, God showed up and ruined everything. It started when Sheldon and Davy headed off to Oxford for Sheldon to study literature, and there they met some Christians. And they made the mistake of investigating Christianity, which brought them into contact with a don at Oxford named C.S. Lewis. They'd never heard of him. And the question began to gnaw at their minds and their hearts, 
Could this silly, even preposterous narrative of a Christ be for real? As Davy grappled with the evidence, and even more with the implications of the whole matter, she eventually came face to face with her own sins and her own need for a Savior. And one night, Sheldon went to the library to look something up, leaving her curled up with a book. And he writes, I came home to find her face streaked with tears, and she clung to me desperately and wept. It was some time before she could try to tell me what had happened. The two lines she wrote next day of a poem that was never completed are the beginning point. All the world fell away last night, leaving you, only you, and fright. Her sin, she said, had come out and paraded before her, ghastly in appearance and mocking in demeanor. Sins? What sins? What sins could this eager, loving creature have committed? Not sins as the world counts sins. Not one person had she murdered, nor one gold ingot stolen, no unfaithfulness, no secret drinking, no dishonesty, no sloth, no kicking dogs. But sometimes she had been grouchy or snappish. She had said cruel things to people, perhaps to her mother or brother. Once in the, in the war, when a young officer, a friend who had been brought up Catholic, had said that someday he would no doubt return to the church, Davy had said with mocking scorn, whatever for? Not brave enough to stand alone? And he had changed the subject. But now her words haunted her. Sin. She knew there was such a thing as plain sin, not something any psychiatrist could absolve or explain away. Even worse, the sins of omission. She quoted some poet whose name she did not know. Oh, unattempted loveliness. Oh, costly valor never won. She was shaken to the depths, shaken as I had never known her to be. I knew that. I knew it had been a huge and dreadful experience, but how could I understand? I, who had never known the like, I held her and soothed her and gave her my love. Well, the inquiry continued on, and the readings of, about Christ continued on, and a few weeks later, Sheldon writes, we were both a little worried about her health, nothing clearly wrong, but she didn't feel quite as chipper as she ought to have done, and finally, her mother was dying of cancer, and then two or three months after our arrival in England, her mother did die. All of this I know, I knew, sharing her feelings, but all at one remove. But for Davy, with a poignancy that could not be utterly shared, there was not only a shaken confidence, but a vivid experiencing of sin, suffering, grief, and death. Christianity was offering consolation and assurance and even absolution. It fell into her as the water of life. She was on the brink, indeed, and then she leaped. Only two days later, she wrote in our journal, Today, crossing from one side of the room to the other, I lumped together all I am, all I fear, hate, love, and, well, did it. I committed my ways to God in Christ. Well, you can read the rest of uh, the story in Sheldon Van Auken's book, A Severe Mercy, which I've read at least seven times in my life and probably will read seven more before it's all over. It's a beautiful story, well told, but the real love story in it is not so much about Sheldon and Davy. It's about the love of the triune God for Sheldon and Davy and the extent to which God goes, as Jesus says in John 14, to not only be with people, but in people.
Well, it's fair to say that uh, most everybody here this morning is not filled with a legion of demons or even lost and confused about the nature of their sin and whether there's a God. No, we're here because at some point we've all placed our trust in that God and are counting on Jesus to cover our sins. But what I want to emphasize is that salvation is something other than praying a prayer. It's so much more than that and so much beyond that. For many, praying a prayer is where it begins. But if you prayed a prayer with a thought that, okay, great, now I'm covered, now I go to heaven when I die, it's all settled and I can get on with my life, then you've fallen into what has been appropriately called easy believism. That's not at all what it means for your soul to live with God. There are many forms of easy believism, but let me speak from my own experience. For some, easy believism means that they've prayed the prayer and now Christianity is, is sort of their Sunday hobby. Like we're here this morning and okay, I've done my thing, check the box, we're done. For others, easy believism means that they've prayed the prayer and now they're pretty much do as they please. Like Davy, they may not be bad people, but practically speaking, they're, they're secularists. God doesn't really matter, practically speaking. And then, of course, for others, easy believism means that they, they prayed the prayer, but for various reasons, they've ditched it all, and they're sort of back in rebellion against God. Well, none of that's my experience. Just so you know, I prayed the prayer at age four and a half. It was Easter time, and we used to have those under 35 in a room won't know what these are, but they were called records or LDs, LPs. And there was an Easter story that Charlton Heston read, The Passion, as we would call it. And I don't know whether it was Charlton Heston's voice or the story or what, but I just was overwhelmed with the fact that why are they doing these terrible things to this good man? And I went and asked my mother, and she said, well, he, they did that because he died for your sins. Now, nobody had to tell me what sin was. I, I was born knowing what sin was. I, if you looked in the, in the dictionary under sin, my name could be found there. I, I was kind of a brat growing up, so I knew all about sin. And the idea that somebody would, like, take care of my sin, I mean, I was all in. Now, believe me, that was like four-and-a-half-year-old understanding, but I took it and it was for real, and I, I leaned into it. But, you know, then, then there's that problem of sin, and, you know, that you don't drive that out immediately from, from a kid, not me anyway. And so by fifth grade, I had to make a decision. Was I going to live for God or not? And I decided, no, I'm going to live for God. And so I went to work to do that. And I had a lot going for me. I was born into a family where both parents were solid Christians. My dad, in fact, taught at Dallas Seminary. So I'd like to say I've been going to seminary and to church since nine months before I was born. And I grew up in a church that taught the Bible. And I mean like serious Sunday school classes where we memorized scripture and we heard all the stories and on and on. And, and I memorized an unbelievable amount of scripture in junior high, um, uh, our teacher had what was called the honor roll, where you'd get a prize if you memorized, like it was Psalm 100, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, uh, Psalm 23, there was one other. Well, I whipped through that thing to get the prize. So then they created the super honor roll. 
So now you had to memorize Isaiah 53, and I, I forget all of them, but I will tell you this. The, the coup de grace was you had to memorize John 13 through 17, which includes 14 that we're talking from this morning. Now, you didn't have to say all of it at once. You could take five weeks, but you had to get it word perfect. And so week by week, I went through this thing. And by the fifth week, there was like a whole audience of junior high kids there because nobody had ever done this before. And when I finished, of course, there was like this giant, you know, applause and all this stuff. Believe me, if, if you asked me to recite John 13 through 17 today, don't, don't go there. I could not remember it. I went to summer camps where we learned about Jesus. I had mentors who taught me about Jesus. I did daily devotions from fifth grade on. It's a practice I still have to this day, Bible studies. Eventually went through seminary myself. Uh, I've been, as I say, part of churches my whole life. Does it sound like I'm boasting? If so, that's not by accident. If you know your New Testament, you should be hearing echoes of Philippians 3, where Paul says, if someone thinks he, had good, if someone thinks he has good reasons to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I lived according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. Well, that's essentially my story. You see, like Paul, I'm what we call a recovering Pharisee. A recovering Pharisee, that's one of the major sins that I need to be saved from. You see, spiritually speaking, I grew up with every advantage and then some, which sounds great, but Jeremiah warns that the human heart is more deceitful than anything else and desperately sick. So sick that he asks a rhetorical question, who can understand it? Well, Jesus understands it. He actually tells my story in Luke 18. Luke says he, Jesus was telling a parable, but I think it was more of an actual scenario that Jesus had witnessed. Two men, he says, go up to the temple to pray. One's a Pharisee and one's a tax collector. The tax collector stands at a distance from the Pharisee. He's utterly overwhelmed with shame and guilt, so much so that he can't even raise his eyes toward heaven, but instead beats his chest, moaning, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Meanwhile, the Pharisee stands and prays, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not crooked. I'm, I'm not an adulterer. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. Why, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all I get. I read my Bible every day. I have a prayer journal. I have a seminary degree. Why, it's an accredited seminary. I know lots of scripture. I have standing in my church. My father was a seminary professor. I have a good reputation. Now, yes, Lord, I admit I do have my sins. Here it is but my sins aren't like other people's. 
The heart is more deceitful than anything else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Only God can. And when God comes to take up residence with me, Bill, he does what Jeremiah says he will do. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. And what does that test reveal in me? Well, the Lord rebukes me by saying, Bill, your pedigree is a blessing, but you, you've made it into a curse. Your reputation is nothing but an idol, and if you cling to it, it will destroy you because it keeps you from me. I'm thoroughly ashamed to say it, but it's the truth. I'm a recovering Pharisee. And so my prayer has become, Lord, be merciful to me, a Pharisee. Where is your soul living this morning? Are you in torment? Are you a basically good person, but nonetheless lost as a lamb in terms of knowing what to do about the parts of yourself that haunt you with shame and guilt? Are you living in a house of cards comprised of self-important credentials that you assume have standing with God? There are countless other possibilities, but as we go to prayer, I would ask you to allow the Spirit of God to penetrate your heart with the question, where is your soul living? Father, right now in the silence of this moment, give us the courage to stand before you, to come before you, to open our heart. Would you test our heart? And would you help us answer the question, where is our soul living this morning? Lord, all that we read in John 14 says that you long to come and live with us and in us. And the same author who gave us this discourse says in earlier in Revelation from where we read, Lord, that he stands at the door and he knocks. He knocks. Infinite love knocks at the door of our heart, Lord. And it says that if we open that door, he wants to come in and dine with us and to have fellowship with, with us. And Lord, we sang it earlier, but help us to believe that he is for us. You are for us. And may your presence go before us and behind us and beside us and all around us and within us because you're with us in the morning, in the evening, in your coming, in our going, in our weeping, in our rejoicing. He is for us. He is with us. Amen.